part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Uh, Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews. Uh, right now we're in more of a series that's kind of more of uh, going through these three offices than we are the expository that we're used to doing. So uh, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews the entire time. You can kind of go to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, just by the name, for all my big biblical scholars here, Hebrews. Who do you think it was written to? The Hebrews, yeah. And these are Christians. These are people that came to know Christ, but they have what kind of a background? A Jewish background. Hebrew. Okay, they're Jewish believers. Now they have come, and they've put their faith and trust in Christ, and yet they come from a lot of this Old Testament. And many of them maybe grew up, even in uh, the Jewish religion. And certainly with that being a factor, you know, first generation is Christians, uh, but they still would have had a lot of that tradition. And that is really important in understanding where the writer of Hebrews is coming. He's going to be using a lot of Old Testament stuff. And I know sometimes the minute we say Old Testament, you go, okay, nod off and, and, and kind of get bored because a lot of times we don't kind of connect Old Testament to New Testament. I'm telling you guys, the New Testament is not nearly as glorious as it is without the Old Testament foundation. It is, you know, the bright light in the hope of the New Testament is because the Old Testament keeps on pointing and directing us to this hope that's going to come in Christ Jesus. And we see that fulfillment in the New Testament. And a lot of times we just want to be New Testament Christians. We need to be biblical Christians, okay? Because the Old Testament is very, very useful, not just for historical purposes, but to show us the fullness of Christ and what our need was. And so this morning, Hebrews, we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at how uh, Christ fulfilled these three Old Testament prophet, uh, offices, prophet, priest, and king. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that role of prophet. And basically, that role of prophet was one of speaking truth to man, God's truth to man. Now, God established every one of these. These are not, man didn't set up, and they didn't sit in church one morning and said, you know we need to come up with some offices for kind of the the really faithful people. Let's make some of those that are here every single week, we'll call them prophets. And the ones that come, you know, pretty often, they're pretty dedicated, they put in their time at the church, we're going to call them priests. Man, the one who's really excelling, we're going to call him king. Man didn't come up with this. This is all from the heart of God. And it's all for the purpose, not that God needed these offices, but it's all pointing to Jesus Christ. Christ is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of all three of these offices. And God in the Old Testament is actually getting us ready for Christ in these three offices. And so we looked at the prophet of God was the one that brought God's truth to man. And this week we will see that the priest is now God's way of mediating between sinful man and a holy God. I want you to understand that none of these three offices would be needed, required, or I don't believe that God would have given them had there not been sin in our life. When man rebelled against God, and when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, chose their own way rather than God's way, when sin came to the world and the fall came, God establishes these things because there's a separation, there's a brokenness. And this morning we're going to talk a lot about separation. Separation is not fun. I can remember as a little kid, and maybe every child has had at least a little bit of this, where you look around in a crowded place, maybe a mall, maybe an amusement center, maybe at a sports activity, and you look around and you cannot find mom or dad. 
Have you ever had that harrowing experience? I mean, it's, it's, it's just as bad for parents when you look around and you can't find your children. But as a child, you look around and that separation and you're looking around and nobody looks like mom and nobody looks like dad and your heart and you scream out, you know, mommy, daddy, and you long for that separation and that uh, to, to be broken and for you to be in, united again. Well, I want you to keep that in mind because that's what sin does. Sin separates us. Separates us from a holy God. And these three offices were God's way of bringing back and pointing us to how Christ was going to bring back not separation, but that we would be unified with him. We would be with him. We would be together again. It wouldn't be us going around going, okay, where is God? But that we would know that God is there. See, when you grow up, it goes from the being scared as a little kid, where's mommy, to real life stuff, guys. <laughs> when your heart is breaking, when your life is kind of hitting those rocky places, and we really begin to ask questions. We begin to ask questions like, you know, does God really understand? Does God care anymore? And sometimes we may even ask that question. Have I sinned so big or so often that God has just written me off. I want you to know that this whole priestly role of Christ answers those three questions. And we're going to see that in Hebrews. We're going to go through Hebrews and not just take a pastor's word for it, kind of go on the emotion, hey, I hope this is so, but that we can go to God's word this morning and say, I know this is so. So that when we hit those rocky places, and they will come, they'll come in marriages, they'll come in families, they'll come in your vocational life, they will come certainly in your spiritual life where you can be a faithful believer, you know in one way, in the big picture, that God will never abandon you. And yet for that moment, for that moment, that hour, or that day, or that week, you start to believe Satan's lie. That God just doesn't care. Because if he really did care, you would not be going through this. Believable lies. Why are they believable? Well, I've never been a big fisherman, and I've never been a real good fisherman, but I, I did find out when I started fishing that you don't just put a hook out there and hope that a that a fish swims by and goes, man, there's a shiny hook. You know, and I'll just kind of latch on to that. Now, that the most successful fishermen were the ones that could so closely imitate something that the fish would really had an appetite for. So that when that fish came by, whether it was a, a rubber worm, a plastic worm or not, that it had enough of the likeness of something that it really would eat, that it would say, man, I'm hungry, there is worm, I will eat. And it latches onto that hook. Folks, if we can do that as fishermen, if we kind of get that simple kind of parable or principle, how much more Satan? He is cunning. We don't want to give all these accolades to Satan. But guys, the Bible gives some accolades to Satan to to give us an understanding of how cunning he is. Okay, He's not the ultimate, but certainly the Bible says, look, he was the most beautiful of the angels. He says that he is cunning. He's, He's able to deceive. That it says in the, Old, I mean, the New Testament that his deception is so strong that there will be many that will be deceived by that. He's kind of the ultimate fisherman in one sense. You might say, well, Bobby, I'm secure in Christ, and I pray that you are this morning. And we are. The Scripture tells us that. But, you know, would you be able to say that your emotions are always secure in Christ? I would love to say that. I would love to say, man, I have got such rock-solid faith. I am so you know, into God's word, and I am such a man of prayer that, man, I'm just rock solid. And so when these emotional things come, man, it just does not waver me. Man, steady as a rock. 
You just call me Mr. Linear because I never go up, I never go down. That is not me. I am roller coaster, roller coaster Bobby. You know, I was a man up and down and up and down. Why? Because life, and even spiritual life, emotional life is that way. Physical life is that way. You, know, you wake up one morning, man, I feel great. Wake up the next morning, I'm dying. If everything was linear, life wouldn't be quite as challenging, but it is challenging even for Christians and put their faith in Christ. And so this morning we're going to go back and see that, okay, because of sin, God established a prophet. Why? Because before sin, how did Adam and Eve get God's truth? From who? From where? From God. <laughs> okay? And how did they commune with God? How did they kind of talk to God? Hey, God. Okay? We, we see a fellowship in the garden that, you know, whether God took on a physical being, you know, theologians still go, okay, did he take on a physical being? We know that God is spirit. But we know that Adam and Eve heard from God. They knew instruction from God. Don't eat this. Go enjoy that. And so there was fellowship. So they got God's truth straight from God. They communed with God straight from their own hearts and their own spirits to God. And sin broke that. And so God establishes these offices there to point us to the one that ultimately would bring us entirely back to God. You see, sin is serious to God. And it's one of those things that as sinners, as, as people who have fallen, you know, living in a fallen world, that there's two tendencies that we have that sometimes we make too much of sin. When I say that, that, okay, we really do have a death sentence that even Christ can't forgive us, that is wrong. Or sometimes we make too light of sin. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. People have done a lot worse. But God takes it seriously. Why? Because it causes separation. And God loves you. How did he prove that? He closed himself in flesh and dwelt among us. So that separation, that gap, would be brought together. See, a lot of times we think, okay, man, we, we deal with sin like we deal with sin against one another. But all of a sudden, husband and wife. Now, what husband and wife has not done this? Okay, you kind of have, let's just call it a squabble. That sounds much more innocent than a fight. And so you have this squabble or you have this discussion. And in that discussion, you, you kind of lock horns. You kind of beat against each other a little bit, uh, not physically, but, you know, mentally, uh, emotionally in that. And so you kind of have this confrontation there. And, um, and, and then, you know, nobody actually ever says that they're sorry. But by day three, day three, hey, here's your coffee. Well, thank you. And so somehow you're going, okay, there was never this formal acknowledgement of the sin, an apology for the sin, or anything like that. You just said, you know, man, I hope she's in a better mood, and I'm hope, you know, I'll try to be in a better mood. How many of y'all have ever done that? Okay. <laughs> Let me tell you, God never does that. As much as you and I would be prone to do that, God never does that. He never looks at my sin. But he never looks at your sin. He never says, oh, oh, Ricky, come here, you big old love. You know, and gives you a, He didn't do that to Adam. He doesn't come over to Adam in the garden, guys, and make light of Adam's sin. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's been three days. I've kind of cooled off. I was really irritated, but you know, it's okay. Folks, there was a separation. That, seri- that separation was serious to God. 
And, and there had to be a remedy. And there's only one remedy that God came up with. And it wasn't you and I just being better people. Because that didn't take the care of the old sin. And so what we see is the establishment of this. And one of the ways that he did that was through prophets and then priests. Now the priests, again, the prophet was... Um, can we show that one... Um, uh, I think there's errors going up and down, God and man. I think it's right after this one. So uh, sometimes I'm a visual person. Maybe this helps you. Okay, God sends a prophet. Why? Because it's kind of coming down to man. God's truth coming down to man. Okay? A priest is kind of the other things. A priest, we're going as sinners, going to a priest, to the high priest, this, uh, what we see in Exodus and Leviticus and all this, and we're going back, and the priest is kind of mediating between us and God. Okay, so do you got those two directions of why God provided that? Now, we're going to see that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. That's why we don't have priests nowadays in that sense. We don't need a high priest. We have a high priest. His name is Christ. Okay, but that's kind of the direction. So he establishes this um, office of high priest. And let me give you just a little bit of Jewish history, not to bore you, but to kind of set up the New Testament and why Christ comes. Have you ever heard of the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur. Have you ever heard of that? You know, you don't even have to be Jewish. You can just, you know, look at your calendar and say, oh, Yom Kippur, whatever. Day of Atonement. The most important day in Jewish life. Why? Because this was the day in the Old Testament that God established, not man established, but that God established to have one who would come make a temporary covering of man's sin. Can we show that next picture there? Uh, in the Old Testament, we have uh, the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, I know that's kind of far away. You can't see all the details of that. But basically, there, when the Israelites, God's people, God's chosen people, are out in the desert, God commands them to make this tabernacle. And there's a courtyard where the people can come in. They bring their sacrifices. Uh, inside that courtyard is a uh, bronze laver. That's where the priests would ceremonially wash themselves and prepare and uh, there was also a bronze altar, and that's where they would take the bull, the goat, the sacrifice, and they would sacrifice that. They would then take the blood, and uh, they would make that temporary covering symbolically there for the sins of the people. And they would do this on a regular basis. Now, on one time of year, they would actually, this Day of Atonement, they would kind of do a big deal, okay? Not just every day bringing a, a, a goat, or a lamb, or something like that. And they would go on, if we go into that next slide real quick. Inside there, you see uh, that there was this little tent. It's called the tabernacle, tabernacle, basically meaning the meeting place. And this was representative of the place where God resided. Like, did God really reside there? Was that his home? Well, yes and no. You know, God is everywhere. But God used that in the same way that there's been times that people called up and said, Bobby, you might open up the church so I can come to the church and pray. Now, now, if you've been living Christian life for a while, you know that you can pray in your car, you can pray in your basement, you can pray in the backyard, you can pray a lot of different places. You don't have to be in church to pray. But have you ever, even in that knowledge, sometimes go, man, just because of where I am, I just, I just need to be like closer to God if I come to the church and I just pray here. Yeah. Well, that's what it was in the Old Testament. You know, God was everywhere. They could pray, but yet this represented kind of the, the home of God where God's presence was. And inside this place was two sections, the holy place, and then behind that, the holy of holies. 
And on this day of atonement, after he atoned for his own sin, his own family sin, then the high priest would bring the blood of, of the sacrifice and he would take it into the uh, back part there. If we can go to that next slide, the Holy of Holies. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. Think Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing, you know. And he would go in there. And on top of the, the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And they would take that blood of the sacrifice and they would pour, them, pour that over that. And for that year, since it was a yearly thing, they would kind of atone for the sins, this temporary atonement for the sins of the people. And they did this every year. In this picture in the Old Testament, we see two things that become kind of um, factual about sin. Would you agree that part of this picture, that you could actually say, hey, because of what God established here, I feel near to God. Here they're out in the middle of the desert. They're wandering the desert 40 years. And yet he says, build this place because this is the, kind of the place I, I symbolically reside. Or I, can you see where they would feel close to God? because of that. And yet, the people, you and I, could just go into the first place. And the other priests could go into the first place, you know, the holy place, but only one day a year could the high priest go into the holy of holies. Does that kind of seem separated? See, that's what God is trying to teach us in the Old Testament about sin. He wants to show his amazing love to us, that he's always going to provide a way for us to be able to have connection with him. At the same time, folks, he never wants us to ever underestimate the serious of separation that happens with sin in our lives. And so we have this Old Testament picture of this high priest coming in there. And, and, you know, as a kid, I always thought it was uh, both cool and kind of weird because one day I heard the pastor say, and when the high priest went in there, to make this atonement for sin. They tied a rope on his leg. Do you know why they did that? And you're allowed to say it out loud. We're family this morning, remember? Why did they do that? Yeah, because if he had sinned in his life, for some reason God just looked upon his sin and it had not been atoned for, you know, his own sacrifice, he would die right there in the presence of God and they're going, okay, we're going to yank his dead body out of there. You know? Serious stuff. And I remember as a kid going, it's kind of cool. I mean, anytime you tie a rope to a leg of somebody and you have to pull him out of his death, when you're 12 years old, you're intrigued by that, okay? You're just going, man, I wonder if I can do that with my brother. You know, you just your mind goes all over the place with this kind of stuff. And I just always remembered that. I don't know at 12 years old, guys, that I really got from that picture. Man, God is really serious about sin. He really is. But he's serious about his answer to sin. I don't know that I got that. I just thought it was really cool about the rope and everything. Well, what does all this have to do with Christ as the high priest? What does this have to do with, you know, both in a theological but also kind of a, a, uh, a very practical way that we live out our lives? Well, we talked about how sin separates. Sin allows doubt to come into our life. And Satan is a fierce liar. The Bible says, Christ said, man, anytime he opens his mouth, it comes out a lie. So here we are. We're people of truth. We have God's truth. We have the Holy Spirit to give us truth, discern truth. But we also have this adversary called Satan, the devil, that is the speller of lies. And you and I, every single day, are kind of in this battle of mind, heart, spirit, emotion, 
of lies and truth. And here's some of the most believable lies, three believable lies that I've heard time and time again from other people in counseling, but also in my own life. One of those that that Satan just makes so convincing at times is that God doesn't understand. Have you ever believed that lie? But there's for a moment, an hour, a day. Now, if I just came up to you and theologically said, Dustin, do you believe that God understands all things? Your answer would be, yes. He's, all, he's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's, he's all these fancy words about how God is complete in all those things. So there's nothing that escapes God. There's not a time when God goes, oh, didn't see that one coming. Never happens with God. So God does understand. But remember the fishing illustration. It doesn't have to be truth. It just has to look like the truth. It's got to feel like the truth. And there's going to be times in our lives, guys, that no matter, maybe it's stress on the job. Maybe it's stress in the marriage. Maybe it's stress with the, you know, with, with the kids. Maybe it's just you know, all kinds of different things, spiritual doubts that come into our lives. And, and we really, for that moment, that hour, that day or that week, we go, you know, God, I don't know that you understand. A second lie that he often tries to, to, to bring upon us is that he just doesn't care anymore. Not that God doesn't care. Very few people ever get to the place where I, I just don't think God cares. But we do get to the place where I, I don't know that God cares anymore, at least for this moment. Or, you know, I know that God forgives sin, but man, this sin was too big, too long, too many times. So how does Christ, being the ultimate high priest, answer those questions? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Taking a long time to set that up, and now Hebrews chapter 2. Let's let the Bible answer the questions to those things. The first one, the why, God does not understand. The truth, as we will see here by the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is a personal and understanding high priest. Hebrews 2, 17, 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is payment, full payment for our sins, of the people. For because he himself, that is Christ himself, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the writer of Hebrews is confronting this whole lie that God doesn't care. He doesn't understand. Just doesn't understand. How extreme was God's measure to say, look, I, I really do understand. I completely understand. He leaves the glory of heaven. And he comes and he dwells in flesh, in, in the likeness of man, made like his brothers. And he dwells among us. That's big. I mean, it's one thing, man, I'm going to be praying for you, brother, when you go through this. It's another thing to go, man, can I help you? Can I get right in there in the dirt and the grime and be with you? Especially if I don't have to, if I don't gain something from it. And that's the love that we see in Christ. We see this pursuing God. That even in our running away, we see this pursuing God. And even when we want to run away and say, God, you just don't understand what I'm going through. God says, I understand. Let me tell you how I understood. I took on flesh. And what does it say there? It says, for he himself has suffered when tempted. 
because he's done that, because he made himself vulnerable to that, he's God. He's able to help those who are being tempted. I look back on my early uh, kind of years in, in ministry. I, was, I started out in youth ministry. And I was uh, a brash, prideful young man. Because when people, parents came in for counseling, me, who had no children, would go to my theory and all my book knowledge. I said, well, here's what you're doing wrong. And if you do these four things, everything will turn out right. I look back on those years and I'm going, why, does the, why did those people not kick me out on the street immediately? Maybe they thought that when they left my office. But, you know, you, you had theory. You had some supposed truth. And so you thought you knew all the other stuff that went with it. This is truth. And God easily, God easily could have said, okay, truth. He says, man, I want to come and live truth in front of you. And Christ puts before us, God himself, clothed in flesh, suffers rejection, temptation, all the different things. Why? Just to see how strong Christ is. You could probably make a theological case of that because he has victory then over sin, death, and the grave. But the main reason is so that he could empathize, sympathize, and say, man, I really do know. And I know what it's like. When you're going through this temptation, you're going through this wonderment, does God even care? You can know that I care. That's the second lie. God, you just don't care anymore. I think you used to care, but I just don't feel you're caring anymore. Well, the truth is, as we would read in Hebrews chapter 7, turn over to chapter 7. And the author tells us that Jesus is permanently interceding for you. Permanently interceding for you. Okay, here's our lives, guys. Our spiritual life, let's graph it. Up, down. You can hit the high water marks and the low points. You can tell me if you're more of kind of this way or if you're more this way. Okay? But none of us, I don't believe, I have not met the person yet that spiritually is just right there. We're all kind of up and down. And in that, sometimes we're going, okay, God did care. But he didn't care, any, he didn't care anymore because I just hurt so much. Listen to what the scripture says about this permanence that Christ has established as a, a priest, a high priest for us. He starts off and he talks about the old priests of the Old Testament. He says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. What does that mean? They died. There was, there was the priest and he did it for a while and then he died and they said, Okay, we need another priest. Okay, that's what he's saying there. Verse 24. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, is he just trying to make a, a, a state of fact? of you know, Why is he talking about the permanence? Look down at verse 25. What's that first word? Okay, why, why would you use the word consequently? Yeah. You just established something, and now you're going to link these thoughts together. Because of this truth, consequently, here, here's the result. Consequently what? He is able to save the uttermost. That's a great Greek word there. It means to the ultimate end, to the very end, to the utter end. Those 
to draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, one of the reasons that we had priests, and even in, in, in some, some uh, different um, denominations even have priests today, and, and you go to the priest and, and you would pray, and, and they would pray, remember? It's man going back to God, and so it's the mediator, and so you're going back to God. Prophets coming down from God, truth coming down from God. Well, the ultimate in that priest, man, you know, I want to go to the priest, or I want, I want to go to the pastor. I want to go to somebody really spiritual so that they can pray for me. I get that. I really do get that understanding that in our frailty and even in our doubt that we say, okay, I want somebody strong. And I'm going to go to the elders. I'm going to go to, the, to my big brother because he's just a spiritual giant. So, so we go to that person. Here's what is saying that Christ has done as the ultimate high priest. He said he is ever interceding for you. There's not a moment of the day that he's not interceding for you. Is that amazing? Christ dies, he rises again, he goes to heaven, he sits beside the Father. And what is he doing there? Going, let me tell you what it was like down there. Now he says, Man, I'm praying for Bobby. I'm praying for this one. And he knows our heart, and he's ever interceding for us. He doesn't say, man, here's a really tough day for Jeff now. So I'm going to really intercede for him. He is ever interceding for us. There's not a day in the time that he's not interceding for you. Is that, I mean, can your mind even capture that? It really is kind of blows our conception away. And so sometimes we get funny, like the old Jim Carrey movie. You know, when, when he's trying to do all the prayers and all the post-it notes and all that kind of stuff. You know, because our mind cannot even conceive that Christ would ever be interceding for us. Ever interceding for you. It's not a moment that he takes off. He doesn't wait till you kind of say, okay, we need you over here, red flag. <laughs> he is ever interceding for you. The last slide there. Man, my sin is too big. Bobby... I really believe that I have exhausted the patience of God. And while that kind of plays upon the emotional part because of patience being more of an emotion, what we would really be seeing, saying in a theological way, I think I've actually sinned to a point where Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient for it. So get it away from the emotion and get it back to the truth because that's what we would really, I, I know the feeling is real. But we've got to take those feelings and bury them in theological truth. And so we may feel like, man, I, I did one too many, or this is so big that not even God can probably have patience with you. No, what we would be saying is, God, your complete sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient for this sin because I did it 12 times instead of 11 times. If I would have just stopped it 11 times, I think it would have been sufficient, but not for that 12th time or that 1200th time. Now, Again, does God take sin seriously? Yes. So don't hear that, okay, go out there a thousand times. It just really doesn't matter. No, this whole process shows us God takes it seriously. But there's a very theological truth that we have to bury ourselves in. Is that of the three lies? This is maybe the one that's going to cause the most emotional, spiritual, not theological, but separation in your heart between you and a holy God. And do you think that Satan will give you some line on that? Any fishermen here? 
you catch this big fish, what do you do? You just, you know, you kind of give them a little line, and then you set, then you set that hook. I promise you, Satan will give you some line here. And he just sets that hook, just waiting to set that hook. What does the Scripture say? Hebrews chapter 10. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. When we say and start to believe that the lie, that my sin is too big, too, too often, too, too whatever, the truth is Jesus is the perfected, the perfect and the perfecting high priest. Now just the perfect high priest, he is that, but he's the perfecting high priest. Now again, this isn't for all of humanity. These are the people that have put their faith and trust in the work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, he's talking about Christ, or is he talking about the Old Testament priest? The Old Testament. He said, man, they did it. They did it day after day because you sinned every day, so you brought another goat. You brought another this. You brought another lamb. And they went through those motions every day. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's the end of time. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has what? Perfected for how long? For all time those who are being sanctified. Not everybody. Not everybody in the world. But for those who put their faith and trust in the gospel, in the hope of Jesus Christ, look what he says. He's perfected for all time. A lot of truths. I could preach for another three hours just on that, what that really means. I, I won't this morning. But guys, that's the truth that Christ puts in the face of that believable lie and God is so ticked. He's not a wishy-washy God. In one way, he's not an emotional God. He is an emotional God, but he's not emotional in the way that you and I where he's just moody. God, God is not moody. Dangerous question. Well, I won't even go there. It's time to go. I was going to say, man, do you have wives that are... No, I was... <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. (laughs) Let's conclude. What does this mean to you this morning? Go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at verse 14. What's the first two words? Since then. Is that a call to action? Is it a call to do something? Kind of like that word consequently. Because of this truth... Here's something else. And so he says, since then, okay, because this truth, where do we go from here? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Final word for the morning. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
That's his promise to you this morning. At the same time, that Christ, I mean, that, that Satan says, man, that was one too many. That was way too big. Oh, God doesn't care. He cared, but now he doesn't care anymore. Let us therefore drop with confidence. Confidence in what? Our ability to be good, to be perfect? No. That the finished work of Christ is complete in time. That's the confidence that you and I have. And where does it get us? Then in the time that we need grace, we receive grace. Time that we need mercy, he gives us mercy. Guys, life is tough. And your lives are filled with chaos and filled with all kinds of this battle going on. It's a wonder that, that we could be saying it all. Save the work of Christ. But he is our hope. He's a great high priest. Ever interceding you. Not a moment this week, Jeff, that he's not going to be interceding for you. Does that not blow you away? There's not going to be a moment this entire next week that he's not going to share. I bring you before the Father. And I know the deepest need of your heart. So with confidence, in your time of grace and mercy, you come. What an amazing promise. What an amazing God. We make much of him this morning, guys. Prophet, priest, and king. Three Old Testament purposes all pointing to the answer of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. We stand in need this morning, Father, of that grace and that mercy, Father. We stand in need to have truth because, Father, maybe even this very week we have believed some of those lies. Maybe there hasn't been a moment that fear, anger, disappointment so gripped our heart that the evil one for the moment won out And we actually thought you didn't care. Father, this morning, help us to rest in biblical truth. Our emotions, they're going to go up and down. But Father, will you tie our emotions to rock-solid truth this morning? That this very Christmas week, that we would understand that your coming and clothing yourself in flesh was not just for a cute little story so that we could sit around and sing songs like Away in the Manger but that you were fulfilling everything that happened from Genesis 1 to the day that is complete and the end of Revelation. That this is one story. It is your story and our story. And you're pursuing love for us. We love you and we thank you, Father. We stand in need, even this morning, Father, of uh, just drawing with confidence from your mercy and your grace. I pray this in the name of the one that made it possible, our great high priest, Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.